0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
1: We're the surgical education team from Cleveland Clinic, and we're back with another Behind the Knife episode on surgical education.
2: I'm Jeremy Lipman. I'm the program director of the General Surgery Residency.
1: I'm Judith French. I'm the PhD education scientist for the program. And I'm Amy Hahn, general surgery resident at Cleveland Clinic.
2: So, today we're going to be talking about the assessment of technical skill. At the end of general surgery residency, the program director must sign a form stating that the graduate residents are now ready for independent practice. So, how does a resident know if they're on the right path to get there? How does a program director recognize who is and is not prepared? And what evidence can we show the public that the community of surgical educators has done their job preparing surgeons for independent practice?
3: Now, we selected the topic of operative assessment to highlight the need for an evidence-based standardized process. And it's crucial to evaluate general surgery residents to ensure competency in graduates, not only high-stakes certification purposes, but also to identify trainees who require focused attention in improving their operative skills. Today, we'll delve into operative
1: assessment in surgical education as we review the journal article titled, A Proposed Blueprint for Operative Performance Training, Assessment, and Certification. It was published in Annals of Surgery in April 2021, posthumously by first author Dr. Reed Williams. We would like to recognize Dr. Williams, who contributed significantly to the field of performance evaluation and operative assessment. Due to his untimely passing, the manuscript was finalized by his co-authors, who are also giants in surgical education, including senior author Dr. John D. Mellinger. For today's episode, we invited Dr. Mellinger to discuss the paper further and to gain his perspective on the future of operative performance assessment in general surgery.
2: So we're going to introduce Dr. Mellinger. He is uh, well known to many in surgical education as a a true giant in the field. Dr. Mellinger has accomplished about everything someone can in surgical education. He's currently Professor Emeritus of Surgery at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine and is Vice President for the American Board of Surgery, President-elect of Sages, and a past President of the Association of Program Directors in Surgery. He's been on the editorial boards for Annals of Surgery and the Journal for Surgical Education, and is Co-Editor-in-Chief of Resources in Surgical Education. He's received more than 30 teaching awards. He epitomizes the surgical educator who researches, disseminates, and models excellence in education, and we are just thrilled to be joined by him today. Dr. Mellinger, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Well, it's a great honor for me to be here, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you all.
1: So the journal article that we'll be discussing today is a review paper that aimed to propose an evidence-based blueprint for training, assessment, and certification of operative performance of surgical trainees. The authors conducted a literature review that summarizes the current state and science of operative skills assessment in surgical training. Based on their findings, the authors proposed a template, for competency-based assessment that can be used following every procedure that the residents perform. The proposed template targets two tiers of operative procedures, high versus low frequency, which dictates the standards against which the trainees are assessed. For high frequency procedures, residents are compared to a mastery learning standard, while for low frequency procedures, residents would be
3: assessed to a norm reference standard that would be analyzed in aggregate. All right. First, can we set the stage by discussing the current practices in operative performance assessment in general surgery residency?
0: Absolutely. Uh, As you stated in some of your opening comments, Dr. Lipman, that the historical standard has been one of attestation. And that's really been true both at the trainee and at the post-training certification uh, level. At the trainee level, it's the statement of the program director that the resident is prepared for independent practice of general surgery. And uh, that allows them to then, amongst other criteria, to sit for their board exams. For the practicing Surgeon, post-training, those attestations come from a chair and from uh, inferences about their ongoing performance that are primarily reflected in things like uh, ongoing licensure and submitting a case log that shows their clinical activity in the field. But neither of those really uh, gives us what we might desire in terms of a really objective assessment of performance. I think particularly as we think about the public trust on which our profession is based, it really doesn't give us an objective grounds on which to say to the public, other than we watch ourselves and we're doing our best, to say we we actually know that the things we're offering you in, technically in our practices, as well as in other domains, are at a level that you can uh, worthily give us your trust in providing your care. So the uh, science of assessment which is obviously uh, what a lot of this paper we're discussing is about today, has progressed a lot in the last 10 to 20 years. And I think we're now in a position, and this is obviously the posit that the paper puts forward, to begin to think a little differently about how we've done this. I would just say, too, and I, I know the, the whole panel that we're discussing this with today is very aware of this, that the American Board of Surgery, for example, has started to inch its way towards asking programs at the training level to do some level of more granular assessment of skill. The current standard for that is, is quite small. It's just that each resident would be assessed for an operative performance six times over the course of their residency, which obviously is really just putting our toe in the water around getting into some type of discipline of acknowledging that such assessments are useful. But it obviously runs far short of that becoming a habit Of training. And we continue to to be based primarily, I would say, to the present time on time in training and case numbers as surrogate for performance.
3: Okay, so based on your research, what did you believe were the major flaws in the current practices of operative assessments? And how are they addressed in the competency-based operative assessments?
0: It's a great question. And I think that the current status, again, is one that's based on using numbers as a surrogate, that if we have enough volume of experience, we hope that that correlates with competence. And then some very beginning efforts, as I mentioned, with the American Board of Surgery assessments over the course of training to begin to ask programs to think about what it would look like to do specific case assessments, as opposed to global assessments of technical skill as part of an end of rotation evaluation, which is what many programs historically have relied upon. The situation I think we're in now is one where we understand enough about the science of assessment that we can begin to ask ourselves, what would it look like to begin to measure the performance of a trainee in such a way that we're really giving them more granular real time feedback, and allowing them to reflect on that as a as a performance improvement strategy, and having benchmarks um, within a program and against even national standards that allow them to see their progress, allow the program to gauge uh, the level of training it's providing, and ultimately again to be more worthy of the public trust.
2: The paper really puts forth some very uh, radical ideas, I would say, about dividing the procedures that general surgery residents do in their training into two tiers those that are high frequency and those that are low frequency and it's a it's a really exciting idea the way that it is proposed here can you talk a little bit about how the idea came about
0: absolutely uh, you know I and I know that the audience and and obviously those I have the privilege of speaking with today are very familiar with this background work but uh, historically I think general surgeons viewed their skills as broadly developed and broadly applicable across a wide range of of operative interventions as well as other domains of care and uh, one of the early studies that really started to highlight that there were some gaps in our thinking around that uh, was uh, richard bell's study back in the mid-2000s and then other works since that's corroborated his findings And, and that That study basically involved asking surgery program directors what operations they really felt their graduates should be able to perform. And there were over uh, 120 operations that were thought to be important ones for a resident to be able to do. Uh, What was interesting is that when national statistics were compared to those views on the part of program directors, more than half those operations the mode nationally, that is the most frequently reported number by residency programs that their residents actually were able to do that that case was zero. So more than half the operations that were felt to be important for a general surgeon to be able to do uh, were actually ones that the uh, most commonly reported experience was none. Uh, So that started to draw some attention to the idea that that maybe uh, the breadth of general surgery, And there's analogies in primary care. If you think of what a family doctor does, for example, but maybe the breadth of that was, was not uh, such that we could really attest that our graduates were competent to do all of those things, unless it was through sort of an umbrella strategy that because they can do X, they must be able to do, you know, Y and Z. Uh, And so that led people to begin asking questions about, well, well, how would we know resident really was competent to do something and should there be a narrow band of procedures uh, that we really are testing that way and that that led uh, in reed williams work which obviously this paper is is really the a culmination of of a career of assessment science that dr williams left us led to uh explorations of things like learning curves and assessment reliability uh, and that's really the foundation for what the paper is espousing. That based on advances in our understanding of those issues, we could begin to talk about what a meaningful learning curve looks like uh, in a resident's development, how many cases are required for such a learning curve, and how many assessments would be required for us to reliably say, other than by attestation, as we have historically, that that resident is really prepared to do that procedure. And that's where uh, the narrowing of that sort of procedural milieu down to a more focused nucleus of procedures that can be meaningfully assessed and are done often enough in typical training.
2: So thinking about that, and and as you mentioned, uh, Reed Williams really did leave us a a great legacy with all the work that he completed. Uh, Do you feel like there's an opportunity for programs to be compared to each other about how their trainees are doing on these learning curves or how they're doing accomplishing the training goals? Should that be more focused on the trainees
0: rather than the programs themselves? That's a really great question. And my my own feeling about that is it, it should be both and and the both in the end should both be primarily formative in their in their focus. So we do know that training programs turn out different products. And uh, again, many in the audience will be familiar with Rachel Kells's paper uh, about five years ago was published in JAMA Surgery, where she used a couple different databases to trace providers to their residency program of origin and also look at their outcomes for things like prolonged length of stay, failure to rescue, mortality, and complications for a spectrum of procedures that went from complex ones like pancreatic to simple ones like appendectomy. And the long and short of it was she was able to show that you could separate providers. These are people post-training into three tiers, and there were statistically significant differences in the outcomes depending which tier you were in, and those tiers were linked to your training program of origin. So there is an imprinting that goes on in our training that translates into the quality outcomes of our subsequent practice. Now, that study, you know, while showing that in statistically significant ways, I think also, in a way, attested to the high standard that is there in our training, despite the fact we're looking critically at it today, in that if I remember the numbers right, you would have had to transfer 14,000 patients from a low-tier provider's practice to a high-tier provider's practice to save one mortality. So... Uh, that data might suggest we're actually doing a pretty good job of hitting the mark, but there's no question there's differences. And those obviously are not just in outcomes, but in things like the cost of care, which is really important to the value equation we're now uh, increasingly and appropriately focused on. So so I think it's it, we need to focus on the individual learner because that's at the granular level where we can coach and intervene to help them improve. But programs, I think, can benefit from benchmarking against each other. And the way I would think of this is um, not so much to say, well, this is a bad program, that's a good program, but to say, what are the best practices in similarly resourced and set programs, that is the physical setting of the program, what are the best practices that a program with lower performance might learn from and improve its own performance? And that that would lead to a more value based graduate medical education in surgery. So I think that's the potential of of looking at these numbers at a at a program level as well as at the individual level.
1: As you mentioned previously, when you reviewed the uh, procedures that were performed by residents, the five operations that were defined as high frequency or performed frequently by practicing general surgeons and general surgery residents for cholecystectomy, appendectomy, colectomy, ventral and inguinal hernia repairs, um, and that the graduates should be attested that they can complete these operations safely, effectively, and independently. So would this be implying that these are the procedures that are limited to the general surgeons who does not pursue fellowship training?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And this this is where the details of what we might do with this information become really critical, because it, it might be easy to say, as we talk about things like the public trust and the quality of our product, which are obviously paramount, uh, we should limit things that we don't, can't attest to competence in. And at the same time, we've got workforce challenges, and uh, in some disciplines, as everyone knows, such as obstetrics and gynecology, virtual desert where there's lack of, of a provider base, and many are forecasting similar things for general surgery in the years ahead. I, I think we have to factor all those things into those discussions. I think what, uh, if I can pretend to to put words in his mouth, I think if, if Reed were here, as I think of conversations. I and others of the authorship team for the paper we're discussing today have had with him uh, prior to his passing. I I think what he would say is it's really important to put our focus for things like accreditation of programs, certification of individual surgeons, assessment of performance on things we can meaningfully assess, and not to pretend that we can uh, just gestalt those things based on limited data. And obviously, we can get into discussing what a what a good data set would look like. But if you look at it through that lens, there are relatively few operations that are done often enough in the typical residency program for the resident to achieve some level of real competence or proficiency. Uh, and and what Reed would say is, we really ought to focus there as understanding the foundations for competence. My own my own thought to be direct on your question, which is a great one is, uh, I I think that there are too many things that a general surgeon can be asked to do, that we will not be able to meet those number metrics that would allow for an optimal assessment. And that's where kind of the alternate proposal of this paper, I think comes in that we can uh, more globally assess other procedures, we just have to be honest with ourselves about uh, what level of assessment we're able to provide of competence in those domains. And if they're, if they're a critical part of a person's future practice, then I do think fellowship training or some way of assessing their practice performance. Um, I'm thinking, for example, there of the work that's been done by the Michigan Bariatric Collaborative, which is shown looking, looking at post-training outcomes, um, that there are ways we can assess that, obviously, through a different tool Uh, with video-based assessment, but in ways where coaching and other models can be used to improve performance, even in the post-training setting.
3: All right. You uh, just talked a lot about the high frequency. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit more in depth about the low-frequency procedures. So, In the paper, you propose the concept that performance on all the low frequency procedures should be grouped together as a general technical skills type assessment. So tell us a bit more about that. And please, please, please include that fantastic analogy comparing prices of groceries.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, Judith. And that that was, I think that idea, that comparison might have been Brian George's idea. And uh, as you know, Brian is really a leader in, in uh, the contemporary version of skills assessment. He was one of Reed's mentees, and he contributed a great deal to this paper. Um, I think uh, where Reed was going with his original thoughts, and then we've obviously uh, adapted them in the paper as we worked on it after his untimely passing, was saying that, uh, uh, and this kind of gets into Amy's uh, question we were just talking about, too, that we don't necessarily have to throw out the assessment's as meaningless if, they, if we don't have the numbers of cases and opportunities to assess that might be required of a reliable assessment of skill. But uh, that we can uh, take those in aggregate and by using uh, benchmarking strategies, at least be able to look at progression curves that might help us identify somebody who's falling off in comparison to their cohort what we'd be doing here is more generally looking at their experience, probably closer to what we do by attestation, more of a global assessment. But many of those procedures, as we know, have commonalities of exposure, of entry, of closure, uh, of maneuvers that allow the procedure to be performed. And therefore, taken together, there there is there is meaning in them. And I think this was Reed's strategy of uh, to say, let's, Let's not view all those as meaningless. That is operative experience. It is skill development. Um, And there's still great potential uh, for those to be learning opportunities. Uh, We just have to segregate what we think we're accomplishing as we assess them. If we recognize that they're done in lower volume and not often enough to really get the same kind of integrity of assessment that that he was challenging us to achieve. the grocery store analogy is that, uh, you know, you have to recognize that that programs are different and residents are different. And so, uh, you know, we could go to, uh, we could go to, uh, in my neck of the woods, we could go to Aldi and, or we could go to a fresh market and we might buy the same items, but come out with a very different bill. Uh, or we could shop a month apart at the same grocery store but one month maybe we're throwing a pizza party for our, you know the kids in the neighborhood and the other month we're planning an upscale dinner for a bunch of faculty to celebrate someone's retirement uh the bills are going to be pretty different even though they're both grocery store bills so that the, as i think of this like the programs that i've seen or or practices that i've been aware of i'll give you a couple examples from um earlier in my career i I remember when I trained, we used to talk about, uh, for example, the University of Pittsburgh program at the time where Dr. Starzl was, and it may still be the case now, I, I don't know the numbers now, but I think their average graduate back around the time I trained was finishing with over 30 liver resections. And that's a very different program than uh, the program programs many of us changed in where that was a relatively rare and really an index case for a chief resident to get to participate in and maybe get to do a handful of times in the course of their residency. But that was a, a high volume center for that. Conversely, um, many on the call will know Sherry Rand, who's a great surgical educator at Stanford. Well, earlier in Sherry's career, I remember her telling the story as Lap Coley first came about. Uh, she was practicing at one of the hospitals in the L.A. area that does a very high volume of indigent care. And uh, we were I was talking about with her about her opportunities to get to do laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And she was outlining that the majority of the patients she cared for had had multiple ER trips. And because of resource issues, had often had multiple episodes of acute cholecystitis treated medically before they ever got to the operating room and really didn't end up being suitable cases for uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomy, especially in the early learning phases of, of the profession with that technique. So those are examples of the kind of differences in the, the training environment that our, our trainees encounter um, and that we as teachers also function in, and it, it won't all be apples to apples. So this is where the context and including things like case complexity in, a, in an assessment of an operative performance are really uh, important.
1: So when thinking about implementing operative assessments from a program's perspective, multiple assessors will be needed. You noted in your paper that at least seven, preferably 10 assessors are needed. What would you recommend for smaller programs who may not have the resources or the manpower? And also how would you recommend that programs address the potential for vastly different assessors the so-called hawks who may be especially tough graders and conversely the so-called doves who may be easygoing.
0: Yeah, it's a really important question in in one of Reed's prior studies he looked at what where the variability in residents performance operative performance assessments came from. And this is a really scary statistic, but in, in one of those studies, 62 percent of the variability came was was rater dependent. So, were they a hawk Were they a dove? As you say, Amy, um, there are many factors that influence that. I think what it tells us is that we have to think about how to compensate for for those differences and uh, recognize that. If the same person rates an individual as the, as the primary uh, gravitas of their evaluation without the perspectives of others, it, it may be a very jaded perspective. The American Board of Surgery, is their psychometricians um, deal with this by correction factors. So when you take your oral exams, they know every person giving the exam, every examiner uh, they have a profile on them for how they grade and they compute that on every single certifying exam as well as in a composite way that allows them to make a correction factor for people that are on the hawk end of the spectrum or the dove end of the spectrum to assure a fair exam so ultimately as we build national databases and and get all of our programs more in the habit of assessment we might be able to to do some of that kind of Correction. But in the meantime, and where many of us will be maybe for quite a long time, and to your point, in smaller programs where it's maybe hard to have seven different uh, evaluators, which were the numbers that the the literature has given us for for what is likely in at least a high percentage of cases to to give us good reliability of assessment, uh, and ideally 10, as you said, from Reed's work. What can we do in those smaller settings? I, I think. The key has to be faculty development and frame of reference and standard setting. Um, And uh, when we do that, and when we give people norms that they can make their assessment by, uh, I think we can standardize and overcome some of those challenges. The The other thing that Reed looked at Um, along with others, uh, is how feasible is it to get seven different raters, at least for these most common operations? And one of the studies they did looked at a a range of programs nationwide, and uh, there were only a small percentage that, and we do review this in the article, that were not able to have at least seven raters, and a good percentage of those that couldn't get seven could have six. Um, and, and I think maybe the most important answer to this question, and I, and I hope it's where EPAs will enter into the conversation. We're talking about operative performance assessment today, but but I think all the skills that we want residents to achieve competency in and that they want to obviously achieve competency in are relevant to this theme is um, if we can get into a habit of assessment as part of our daily workflow, um we're probably more used to that with operative assessments now because of Reed's work, because of programs like Simple and the work of the PLSC and Brian George's work with that group, who obviously is one of the co-authors of the paper. But uh, I think we're we're thinking about it more in the area of operative skill assessment, also as we think about entrustment, and um many on the call will be familiar with. Rebecca Miner and Gurjeet Sandu's work and others um, in that domain. I, I think we're seeing a lot more focus in the operative realm, um, but, but all the things we do, inter- interfacing with patients, providing consultation, um, doing resuscitations, uh, providing good information for pre and post hospital care, all those things are part of what we do. And if we get into a habit of ongoingly having a conversation with our learners as we do the work with them, um, I think that could be transformative for the profession. Uh, So I think ultimately that's where we need to end up is developing our faculty uh, and getting into a habit of assessment is just how we roll in our daily workflow. Uh, Amy, you might comment on this and I'm sure you're in a setting where you get plenty of this, but over the years, probably one of the most common things I've heard from residents and students is uh, I wish I got more feedback. I wish I was told more often how I could improve. I wish when I did something right, it was reinforced more, so I knew that I should continue uh, leveraging that behavior. And we we don't, we have collectively a long ways to go in getting into sort of that, if I can put it this way, that Hippocratic discipline of sort of living day to day for what we're passing on to the next generation. So I I think that's the ultimate solution to to your question.
3: Okay, so. Let's say that I'm a program and I really buy into this, or I'm a resident and I want to go to the program director and be like, hey, we should really look into this. What are some of the innovations and novel technologies that can aid in employing the proposed template for standardized competency-based operative assessments?
0: That's a great question, Judith. And you know, probably the one that the biggest segment of the readership will be familiar with is uh, SIMPLE. I think there are, if I if I am current, there are sixty or seventy programs using it nation, not wide now, which would mean what about twenty percent of general surgery residencies, which is a sizable number. And and as folks know who've seen it, and if not, just to briefly describe it, it you know it's a, it's a mobile based platform. You can do it on your phone. Uh, it allows you to pull up a specific resident. Um, identify the case you did, identify the level of complexity of the case, or give a score for the resident's performance and their level of independence or or preparation for autonomous function. And one of the things I find particularly powerful about that tool, which we have used where I've been here at SIU, is the ability to dictate a summary at the end. So instead of just a series of check the boxes, which is very efficient for the faculty, um, the ability to dictate and say, hey, this particular point you know, uh, was the thing we wanted to focus on as your learning focus for the case, here's how you did with it, here's my suggestions for what you might do next time. These mobile-based uh, tools uh, are now at a point where they can capture a lot of this data for us very efficiently in a way that doesn't interrupt faculty workflow, that does help us form habits of assessment, And it gives the resident uh, enduring material that's available to them throughout their residency uh, that that could be really meaningful. Many of my residents will will later comment that the dictations they get from the faculty really help them uh, from a coaching standpoint on how they can improve their performance. The other thing I would say is that there are other tools that are developed within programs. There are a number of places that have developed homegrown tools, several of the uh, institutions uh, that were in the American Board of Surgery EPA pilot, many of them use simple, there were 28 programs in in that pilot, but some of them developed their own, the University of Wisconsin, for example, did a tremendous job developing its own tool and has published about that. So I, I think we're in an era where depending how geeky you are at your institution and what resources you have, You can either through outsourcing or through internal development, do things that really facilitate this process for the faculty and make it uh, easier to opt in.
2: Dr. Mellinger, this has been just fantastic. Thank you so much for all of your time and for sharing your insights. Uh, We like to do our education sign out. So can you give us a few take home points you'd like our listeners to keep with them in reflecting after this podcast?
0: Well, thank you, and thank you, Jeremy and Judith and Amy, for the, the privilege of uh, the visit with you today, and thanks for what you are all doing in surgical education. I, I think the things I would encourage the audience to take away is that um, assessment science and the technologies to support it are in a very different place than they were when us old gray-haired, no-haired guys did our training, and we're in an era where that can be leveraged to begin to really make a science of our learners progression uh, towards competence and really serve them well. And again, serve this issue of our public trust well in showing that we are training people to a level that uh, makes them ready to provide the care. Our trainees are incredibly brilliant people. I don't think I would get into surgical residency now (laughs) if I think back to my qualifications compared to those I see in interviews nowadays. These are bright people. They want to serve the world well, and we ought to be doing everything we can to equip them in a way that they know when they're done, that they're ready, and and if there are gaps, that they know where they are so that, like all of us, they can make that part of their lifelong learning focus, and I I think we're in a place now to do that uh, and to begin to get information from it that really help us do it better, so it's an exciting time to be a surgical educator.
2: Well, thank you again for all of your time and all of your work on this. We're very grateful.
0: Truly my privilege. Thank you.
2: Dominate education.
0: Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.